This is the State of Inclusion podcast, where we explore topics at the intersection of equity, inclusion, and community. In each episode, we meet people who are changing their communities for the better, and we discover actions that each of us can take to improve our own communities. I'm Amy Sanders. Welcome. Today, we are happy to welcome Stephen Pickett of the Western State Center. Welcome, Stephen. So pleased to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Stephen, I first learned about your work when I discovered a very comprehensive document that you and some others worked on, and it's called A Community Guide for Opposing Hate. And I'm really happy to have the opportunity to talk with you here today. So maybe a good way to start would be, if you don't mind, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and about the work you do and the organization you're part of? Sure. So I'll tell you first about the organization that I work for. It's Western State Center. It's based in the Pacific Northwest and Mountain States, and we were founded in 1987. And we really serve as a hub to engage partners committed to strengthening inclusive democracy. And we have programs that span four key pillars, which is building movements, developing leaders, shifting culture, and defending democracy. And as part of our broader work to counter white nationalism, we monitor anti-democracy and bigoted social movements active in our region, and then provide tools and resources to equip civil society leaders, democratic institutions, local government, and community groups to respond to this this type of organizing. And I've been working with the center for about three years now. And previously, I worked for two national organizations, the Anti-Defamation League at their national office in New York City, and the Southern Poverty Law Center based in Montgomery, Alabama. So really, I've been doing this type of work in terms of monitoring white nationalists, paramilitary and anti-democracy groups for over a decade now. This is not your everyday job. How did you end up doing this work? Great question. When I was uh, in school in Chicago, I went to DePaul University and I, I needed an internship. And the national field director of an organization in Chicago at the time, the Center for New Community, was Eric Ward, who is the outgoing executive director of, of Western State Center. And I met Eric and he needed, uh, he needed interns for, for Center for New Community. So I joined as an intern and my life has uh, never been the same since. And it's, it's that, that was halfway through college and it, it, based on the work that we did there, mainly countering the anti-immigrant movement in the U.S. And it really, as an immigrant myself, it was some, you know, the work was really rewarding and yeah, so it kind of started started halfway through college, and I, I haven't looked back. I wanted to talk with someone specifically who worked in this area, and I wanted to understand a little bit about the broader picture. One of the things that's clear, communities cannot afford to ignore hate, and they need to have some actions that they can take to anticipate, plan for, respond to the events that might happen in their community. When I found your guide, I realized that you had a lot of wisdom to share with communities. So can we talk a little bit about the guide that you've put out? And maybe along the way, can you talk about how you think about hate, how you might define it, or how in this context you think about it? Sure. So the Community Guide is a a joint project of three institutions, uh, Western State Center, uh, the Montana Human Rights Network, which is a 
a really awesome organization that does similar work to Western State Center, but is limited to the state of Montana. And then the Bard Center for the Study of Hate. And the director at the Bard uh, Center for Study of Hate is Ken Stern, who is a longtime lawyer and activist who has been involved in terms of fighting back against uh, white nationalism and anti-democracy groups for for many decades, you know, before I was even born. And in the in the 1980s and 90s, there was a couple of really good reports that came out that were similar to this guide. One was called When Hate Comes to Town, and I think the other was When Militias Come to Town. And Ken and I are, are friends. We've we've known each other for many years. And and he came to me and said, look, it would be really great to, to have a, a similar guide, but with much more updated information for essentially to help communities respond to what the landscape of hate looks like right now, which is a little bit different from what it was in the 80s and 90s, especially with, you know, the proliferation of the internet, etc. And yeah, so that was that was kind of the genesis of the of the guide. And one of the things that I, I, uh, I did a lot of at the beginning was really speaking with former colleagues, and then also community groups on the ground all over the country, I think I spoke to something like 20 different groups or individuals about to ask them really what they thought would be useful in in a guide like this and 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 a would it be useful and then b what would be useful in it i think part of it as well was we wanted to do something for folks that are just starting off so we're in a place right now where folks on the ground are recognizing that there is a rise in hate in their communities either it's hate incidents or organized groups Get, uh, you know, organizing in their communities, and they're they're asking questions about those groups, but then about what to do. And the guide is really for uh, a lot of it is for folks who are really just starting off. You know, how do I create a group? Who should I reach out to? And then, you know, once you have a group created, kind of what to do in terms of messaging and and, and a lot of other things. So that's that's kind of the the genesis of the guide. So talk a little bit about this word hate, maybe it would be good to sort of put down a way of thinking about it that informs your work so that we can have some context for our listeners. Sure. For me, I consider hate to be inherently anti-democratic in, in nature. The groups that we uh, see, the, the you know, if you look at the broader hate movement in the United States, the anti-democracy movement, it's inherently anti-democratic in nature. These folks are coming at that from a, a lot of different approaches. Some some of it is an animus towards immigrants. Some of it is an animus towards people of color, uh, LGBTQ folks. There's many different approaches that folks are are coming at it from. But for me, we're in it. We're in a space right now where our democracy is threatened by uh, individuals and and organizations and and a broader movement. And I think those folks kind of all fits. In, in some ways into that broader categorization of hate. One of the things that you mentioned in your guide, which I thought was a important thing to bring out, is you talk about hate being more dangerous when people consider it to be a noble thought or idea. Yeah, I, I think there is a, a, a real concerted effort by uh, a lot of these these groups to, to really approach this from a, an angle where they can essentially gain traction within communities. So being very smart about the rhetoric that they use, the tactics that they use, and not being as 
overtly racist, overtly bigoted as groups were kind of in the 70s, 80s, 90s. The rhetoric is different, the the tactics are different, and it's all an attempt to gain credibility within communities and then essentially gain followers. Just one thing that I think is an important thing that I think gets overlooked sometimes, which is anti-democracy groups looking in some ways to like rebrand their public image and partnering and trying to really engage in in community work. We see this a lot and that's definitely something troubling. Um, I see this especially with like paramilitary groups, for example, the like three percenter militia type groups. And they, you know, they do things like food drives and things like that. The the reason for doing that is they're they're trying to build rapport slash credit with with the community. And, you know, show that, look, we're not just gun-toting militia. And the, the other reason they're doing this as well, which I think is is something that folks should think about, is they're trying to make the argument that federal or state government isn't necessary, that we as a community can help our brothers and sisters. We don't need the state government to help. We don't need FEMA to help, et cetera. We can do that work. And then, you know, we've seen this around natural disasters. We saw this around with COVID as well. There's been many, many different kind of ways that especially kind of these paramilitary groups have tried to really kind of build credit within within their communities. And I think it's just something that may go unnoticed or it doesn't get called out enough. And I, I think it's just something that folks should think about too. I'm glad you mentioned that because it affects how they're viewed in the community, but also affects their ability to recruit additional members within the community if they're able to rebrand themselves, as you're saying. In your guide, you gave some specific scenarios for action. And honestly, I'll say it felt like they might have been inspired by real events. Maybe some of them felt a little too close to home. I don't know. Were they based in real events? Are they things that communities have faced? Because you outline in each one of those scenarios, you know, these are the kinds of steps that you could take. Absolutely. So this is one of the the sections of the toolkit that I'm I'm most proud of. When I when I said that I talked to a lot of folks before putting this together, I asked specifically about these scenarios and and said, would this be something that you think is worthwhile? And and across the board, community activists, lawyers, all sorts of folks that I spoke to said, yes, this needs to be in there. And really what we wanted to do is make these as realistic as possible, because these are the things that community groups and civic institutions are facing right now. Anti-democracy groups as well, they want to marginalize these folks. And the scenarios are an indication of what you know, we're seeing currently. And, and really what we wanted to do as well is put these in so that when folks are reading it, they, they realize, oh my God, you know, this is not only just happening to me, or this is not only just happening to my community. And saying as well, giving, giving folks an indication that A, they're not alone, and B, there, there are solutions to this. You can, you can respond to these types of attacks. And here's some guidance to, to help navigate that. Another thing that you give in the guide, which I thought was particularly helpful, is some advice about how to protect yourself when you're doing this work. Can you say a a few words about that, about the risk that people face and some of the ways that you think about how folks can protect themselves? I think folks who are engaged in this work, you know, they they must recognize that there are some risks. The anti-democracy groups, especially white nationalist groups, are 
certainly looking to marginalize leaders, leaders of inclusionary groups, movements, etc. That's their MO. They, they want to marginalize these folks. They want to isolate these folks and stop them from doing the good work that they're doing. And, and one of the things that's a, a key kind of tool in their arsenal is doxing, exposing both, you know, personal information, home address, etc. You know, the goal of that is to, you know, have a chilling effect to say, if you do this type of work, we're going to expose you. And then again, we want to marginalize you, et cetera. And it, it's trying to send a message that people shouldn't be engaged in this type of inclusionary work. So with that said, I mean, there's some good information in the guide, but I think some other things to think about for folks who are, you know, looking to engage in this type of work is things like what happens when you Google yourself? Who has access to your social media channels? Are your social media channels open for anyone to kind of pry in and see and see kind of your personal life? So those are a couple of questions that I, I think people should ask. And one recommendation as well that I'll plug is there's an organization called Equality Labs, and they do some really, really good work around digital security. And they work with civil rights organizations, with civil rights leaders around really kind of helping them prepare for these the targeting by anti-democracy groups. They do this on a case-by-case basis, but they also have a digital security toolkit that's available online for anyone to to access. And it really, it's, I think, a really good guide in terms of just thinking about digital security when you're engaged in this type of work. So that's really helpful. And I found those elements in the guide to be helpful as well, because it made sure that we think about as we move into this work, that there are some necessary steps to protect ourselves, to put in place certain pieces of armor, if you will, to protect ourselves, whether you consider that a VPN or some other pieces of technology or actual steps that we might take to protect ourselves before we move into this work. I really want to talk about what you see communities can do, not just in response to recognizing an event, but perhaps even more proactively. How can they prepare themselves before incidents happen, either to minimize the likelihood they'll occur, build a firewall, if you will, as much as possible, be prepared in advance for a community response, and then build community resilience to make sure that the damage that is done is is minimized in some way or protected against? Do you have some thoughts about how communities could proactively go after this? Yeah, for sure. Uh, one thing I'll just say off off the bat is we need to start looking at this in terms of playing more offense than defense. And what I mean by that is we need to not be waiting around for an incident to happen before taking action. I think uh, communities, community groups, coalitions more broadly, it doesn't help if you're only speaking to your community, your community group, your coalition in the wake of an incident, et cetera. I, I think uh, one of the things that I'll say is that if you can have sustained communication, that I think is something that's super crucial. Not picking up the phone just when something bad is happening. You should be picking up the phone on a, on a monthly basis, on a quarterly basis, et cetera. Like continue to engage with your, with your group, with your coalition on an ongoing basis and not just when something bad happens. In addition to that, I think in terms of 
minimizing the likelihood of bigoted and anti-democracy groups gaining a foothold in our communities. It's definitely a difficult time because these groups, so many of them are able to mobilize across great distances because of the internet. And I think the best thing we can do is to ensure that our communities are informed about you know, the conspiracy-oriented narratives that bigoted groups espouse, and then also be willing to kind of look ahead and see what are the, the kind of dangers, what, what's happening, what could be happening on the horizon that we need to be ready for. And a couple of things I'll say as well, Western State Center has another resource called Confronting Conspiracy Theories and Bigotry at Home, which is for caregivers and parents who might be noticing that their kids are repeating some harmful things they see online. So that's that's certainly one thing I'll plug. But also, you know, this is a problem that we need to handle on a societal level. And that's where I think community response and resilience is key. The toolkit uh, that we released with BARD has, you know, great ideas for community members on how to get involved. But we're also, we as Western State Center, and I think more broadly, we're, you know, figuring out how to work with local government officials on, you know, building resilience into their agencies. A question that we get asked very often is, after community leaders, et cetera, speak out about bigoted incidents, what do they do next? And really what we're we're uh, pushing is is encouraging for trainings for frontline workers, you know, resourcing programs that builds inclusive democracy within civic government, and then even getting creative with things like civil litigation to challenge organized bigotry. So that's a lot. My key takeaway from that is there are a lot of things that communities can be doing mm-hmm. in advance to better prepare themselves to make their community more resilient, to build the kind of coalition around this that is necessary in order to minimize the effect that this might have on your community. So another aspect of this is how individuals are recruited and radicalized. And you mentioned a little of that when you talked about the tool that you guys had at the Western State Center. But can you talk a minute about specifically how can communities make their community a less fertile ground for this sort of recruiting and radicalization of young people or adults either, but particularly young people? Yeah, there's many different things. One is a real public response from elected officials. I think it starts it starts local in terms of elected officials announcing this. The more that we see public figures speaking out against this and engaging in inclusive activity, it closes the space for these groups to, you know, to gain a foothold in the community. And I also think as a a country, the United States, we're approaching the issue of, of, you know, white nationalism, of anti-democracy movements from, from a law enforcement only perspective in many ways. I think, you know, simply putting these folks in jail, for example, isn't going to fix the problem. This is a societal problem that needs to be addressed. You know, we have a a separate toolkit that's for teachers, which is essentially dealing with white nationalism in schools. And I think schools and education, especially for young people, is is a critical aspect of this that I think uh, if we look to our European counterparts, they're doing a much better job in terms of approaching this issue from from a societal standpoint versus a law enforcement standpoint. Germany, I think, is a really good example of that. I think it was a couple of years ago they released 
something like an 80 point document that the, the government was initiative that the government was going to take take on over a billion euro investments in responding to essentially rises in white nationalism and anti-democracy movements in, in the country. And almost all of it was dedicated towards education, inoculation, things like that, uh, it, versus giving it to law enforcement, essentially. So that is that is something as well that we need to look at, is look at outside of the United States and look for Look for good examples more broadly in terms of how how other countries are approaching this issue. I love the term that you used, inoculation. That's a good way of thinking about it, because one thing I want to just talk about a minute is sort of the range of things that communities might see. On one end of the spectrum, we've got violent extremist groups that are espousing hate, maybe directed at particular community. So, you know, white nationalist groups or uh, nativist groups. But then on the other end, or maybe not, I don't know if it's the other end, but in another way, we also have community groups. Maybe it's a church or a school or a small organization that are maybe well-respected in the community, and yet they still espouse what could be considered anti-democratic or even hate ideology. And, I, you know, I think about maybe a church that preaches very strongly against the gay community, or maybe even in my own city where I am in Greenville, South Carolina, we think about a university that's very well connected in our community. I guess I have a question. How do you deal with that spectrum? Is it ever okay to partner with these organizations can you do that without giving their ideology more oxygen? Sure. A couple of things here. I think I certainly agree that there's a spectrum. But for me as well, these groups are looking to kind of sow the seeds at the local level in order to essentially create conditions where their behavior is is seen as accepted and not as extreme. And I think they, you know, this is a long game for a lot of these these movements. They're looking to build credibility within the community as much as possible and start small. You know, we're seeing in places like Idaho right now where you have white nationalists running for school board, showing up at GOP meetings and in some ways kind of gaining traction. And that's that's certainly concerning. And I think it needs to be something that's tackled, you know, at the root. And, you know, when when you're able to see it like at that level, it needs to get tackled at that level so that Things don't escalate further to the point where we're we're getting to you know as you said to to a place where hate rhetoric et cetera is much more accepted and and seen as you know okay and in terms of working with these groups and and kind of a couple other questions that you asked around you know giving them oxygen visibility you know I think question of providing them with more oxygen is certainly an appropriate question to ask when weighing up a response to these groups. A lot of these groups are craving attention. You know, you see a lot of groups that are tiny that will do like flyer campaigns where they, you know, they will put a bunch of racist flyers in, in a neighborhood. And their whole reason for doing that is one of the reasons I should say is press attention. They, they want local media to write about this. They want their name in you know, up in lights because it will get them more attention. It will get them potentially more recruits, et cetera. So 
in that case, do you, you know, is it is it worth you know giving them that attention? Probably not. But in many cases, I think it is necessary to, to name names and and to call out these groups directly. Do you have a way of viewing this landscape across these groups, a typology of sorts of these different types of organizations, or do you you know pretty much lump them all together? I wouldn't lump them all together, but what I'm really interested in is how they are working together, potentially, or the bridges between them. And, you know, when you dig down a little deeper, there there can be some bridge building that's going on that's not necessarily kind of easy to kind of spot. But that's that's one thing that definitely concerns me is when you see crossover between the two. Like, why, you know, why is the lieutenant governor of Idaho speaking at a white nationalist conference? Like, how did we get there? Uh, and wh- why is that happening? Why is that not? Why is that OK? Why did she feel like it was OK to, to speak at something like that? Those that kind of crossover certainly concerns me when you have the more traditionally marginalized groups becoming more mainstream or at least having more access to the mainstream. Yeah, so that's really some some thought-provoking discussion there, which is not only is it important to understand the groups that are working in your community, but to understand the potential interconnected or crossover connections between them and that that web that might be being built and how they work with one another and and in some ways lift each other up. Absolutely. So far, we've been talking about, mostly, about things that happen within the community. So groups within the community, events that occur within the community. I guess I had a question for you about, back to something you said earlier, which is that some of these groups, some of these smaller groups are organizing from afar, if you will, and then they parachute into a community. And I'm specifically thinking about the Pride Festival that was in Idaho and in the news recently, and I heard you speak about that, where I think the finding was that most of the people who were in that truck that was stopped were not from that community. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about how communities can combat this, you know, this sort of idea that their community becomes a target from an outside group that they maybe didn't even see it coming. Sure. So a couple of things here. I think first, it kind of depends on the group. I think the broader answer is that currently many of the anti-democracy groups that we see across the country are openly encouraging people to think and act locally. But that said, you do have some groups that are crossing state lines to engage in, in political violence and other things. So I think about a Proud Boys rally in Portland where you have people flying in from all over the country to to engage in, in violence in Portland. The Patriot Front arrests that you said uh, that you mentioned is another really good example. Another is that we we know that paramilitary figures from North Idaho and other places are traveling hundreds of miles to the Arizona uh, US US Mexico border in Arizona to participate in essentially vigilante, armed vigilante missions targeting migrants coming from Central America. But in terms of the parachute organizing, we do see this a lot as well. And and I see a lot of this uh, around the anti-CRT efforts. The goal... And CRT, you, know, you mean critical race theory? I do. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah. And and the goal for, for, this, for this type of effort is to make it look like it's a grassroots movement. So 
they, you know, they want to make it look like these groups uh, who are on the ground in Oregon or California or anywhere that this was a group of concerned parents who came together of their own volition to respond to, you know, what they see as indoctrination of their kids or something like that. That's what that's what the larger anti-democratic groups want to they want. They don't want their name essentially on any of the kind of local organizing. The goal is that to make it look like it's a grassroots effort. But in reality, you know, these some of these local groups, especially around CRT and some of these other issues are getting direction, funding, talking points, et cetera, from more national organizations. And we also saw this last year, at the end of last year, where you had a couple of instances where children, uh, middle school and high school kids were, were walking out of schools, protesting mask mandates that were at schools. And it was celebrated on, you know, by anti-democracy groups saying, oh, my God, like, look at these, look at these kids. They're standing up for, you know, what they believe in, blah, blah, blah. But if you looked into that a little bit deeper, you would see that a national uh, student group was behind a lot of that. They they were actively encouraging students to engage in this, et cetera, and praising their efforts. And, and so, again, they're trying to make it look like it's grassroots, but in reality, some some national organizations are, are pulling the strings, essentially. Some of my key takeaways from that is, first, you do need to understand the organizations that are operating within your community, how they may be interconnected. But you should also look at the larger national landscape and understand groups that may be targeting local campaigns or local actions. And then the other thing that I take away from your comments is that whenever we have an incident or some level of organizing or some activity that is anti-democratic, we should look at that activity and not just look at it on the surface and say, okay, this is a local initiative, but we should look try to, to the extent possible, look behind it to see if there is perhaps some other energy or fuel that is feeding it, and then look across to see if there are similar initiatives being replicated in other areas that might give us a clue to how this came about in our community. So I see that as a kind of a multi-sensing and multi- Uh, intelligence work to try to think about this in different ways and from different angles and different lenses. Is that a fair takeaway from what you're talking about? It is. And certainly some of this can be challenging for for community groups. And and really, that's something that uh, Western State Center, groups like the Montana Human Rights Network, the Anti-Defamation League, Southern Poverty Law Center are all Groups that can essentially connect the dots for community groups that can, you know, uh, show where these, you know, where this kind of organizing, these strategies, tactics are coming from and, you know, help, you know, help communities to to respond to it. I think that that's one of the biggest things that we engage in at Western State Center is helping communities kind of connect these dots and, and then talk about strategies to respond to it. So I did some work in marketing and we had a lot of sensing and gathering of information about consumer sentiment and what was going on around our products and our brands. And it makes me think about that in this case. So I have a couple of questions for you around how are communities actually putting in place sensing or intelligence mechanisms to understand and monitor this over time, not just as a one-time event, but over time? And then how are they balancing that with the other, maybe 
the more forward-looking work that they may be doing in terms of improving their community or making changes? Is it the same group that's doing this? Is it usually a specialized group? Tell us a little bit about how this is working in communities, and maybe if you've got some examples of communities who are doing a great job at this, that would be terrific. Sure. So a lot of what I'm seeing is folks are monitoring these groups. They're monitoring the groups that they know are active in their areas. Much of the organizing, especially by more anti-democracy groups, so not white nationalists, but the more anti-democratic groups that are, you know, again, doing things like anti-CRT work. A lot of that is happening out in the open because they, they want to gain more recruits. They want to have more people show up at their events, et cetera. So they're not really hiding what they're doing. So it's it can be easier to kind of see what those folks are engaging in in that way, which is which can certainly be helpful for communities. You have a lot of folks who are using mediums like Twitter to, to research and expose anti-democratic organizing. And I see this a lot on Twitter where you have individuals or folks who are unaffiliated with a group or that are just they want to kind of call out what they see as anti uh, democratic organizing in their area. But also, as I just said earlier, you know, you have organizations like Western State Center who are doing a lot of this as well. And, and we get questions and do trainings for, for community groups all the time in our region about who are the groups most active, like where to look in, in terms of responding to what are the best kind of tools to respond to some of these groups. And then in terms of balancing it, you know, balancing it with uh, more positive work or more proactive work, as you said. I think responding to anti-democracy organizing can certainly be rewarding. Things like turning their organizing on its head with counter counter projects, like getting people to raise a dollar for every proud boy who's showed up at, at a Planned Parenthood clinic uh, in protests. And, and then all the money that you raise goes to the clinic. Things like that can be super rewarding. We, we have some of that in the guide as well of, of kind of ways to kind of flip the anti-democratic organizing and, and you know, flip it on its head so it's, it can result in a more positive outcome that the whole community can kind of get behind. And in terms of what are communities doing really well, what I'm seeing right now is folks are doing a great job of forming broader coalitions, partnering with folks that they wouldn't necessarily partner with in the past or didn't think about partnering with. So I'm talking about like business, faith. You're seeing that at the local level a lot more, which I think is really fantastic to see where you have people thinking kind of outside of the box and 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 thinking who who else do we need to partner with that are not just our traditional allies. And I think that's been something that's really, really great to see at the local level. And another thing too with this is I think after the 2016 election, you had a lot of people who were obviously upset about the outcome and their immediate response was, who do I donate to? And I think what's changed in the last few years is people are saying, yes, we need to continue to donate to groups that are standing up for inclusive democracy, but we, we as a society need to get more organized, need to get more, we need to be doing more than just uh, sending a check to, to someone who's doing the work. We need to engage in the work itself. And I think that's what the guide, the toolkit is really useful for is, is people saying, hey, I, I need to actually 
stand up for my community. I need to get organized. I need to connect with people. And I think that's one of the really good parts about the guide is, is that it serves as a, a guide for people that are in that space right now who are motivated, who are, you know, n- not happy with the direction that their community is going in in terms of, you know, the rise of anti-democracy groups, et cetera, and, and want to do something about it. So I find that very encouraging that you're seeing a shift from people who are more or less spectators and then donate to try to engage in this to the point where people are becoming more directly engaged and feeling like they need to take ownership for the culture and the environment that exists within their own community. So I find it very encouraging that you're seeing that happen across the areas that you look at. So thank you for sharing that because it's it can be sometimes difficult to find positive elements in this work. Mm-hmm. And I think it's uh, it's helpful to know that. And it suggests for the communities who are listening that there may be a lot more resources out there for them in their community, people who are willing to join on with them in this work if they find a way to bring them on board. Absolutely. And, and Western say is, you know, I'm, I'm seeing this from, from my work. We are engaged with librarians, for example, uh, musicians. You know, we, we're really encouraging people to kind of think, again, think outside of the box, partner with the institutions in your communities that are being targeted. Libraries are a big thing right now. You know, anti-democracy groups are really uh, targeting libraries. And yeah, as your community group should go meet with your local librarian, see, you know, see what what resources they have, what you can do together. It could be as simple as, you know, having an event at the library as a kind of a show of solidarity with the library if, if the library is being targeted around, you know, book banning or other, you know, the litany of other things that unfortunately librarians are having to deal with right now. But yeah, I think it, it really is encouraging to see kind of from the grassroots level, a, a kind of a burgeoning movement that's happening that's responding to anti-democracy organizing. And it's it's coming from the traditional folks, but with a much broader coalition now, um, which includes, yeah, artists, musicians, librarians, teachers. It's, yeah, it's pretty fantastic to see. And it's, you know, not just in the region that I'm looking at, which is mainly the Pacific Northwest and the Mountain States, it's happening in the South. Yeah, the Southwest. It's, yeah, it's really exciting to see. It has been great to think about how communities can act proactively in this area. So, Stephen, I just want to thank you so much for taking time today to talk with us for the great work that you did on your guide. And I'll be sure to put that in the show notes as well as some other resources that we've talked about. So, again, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was great to speak with you. And thank you very much. I hope this conversation with Stephen Pigott of the Western States Center was both eye-opening and helpful for you. We covered a lot of ground in our discussion, and I'd like to recap just a few takeaways. Stephen mentioned that it is important for communities to, as much as possible, get ahead of this. And that means understanding and monitoring the anti-democratic and hate groups within and around our communities. He told us that we should be sure not just to look at the groups themselves, but dig deeper to understand potential and emerging relationships across these groups. He also mentioned the idea that if an incident occurs in our community, we should look beyond that single incident and see if it is part of a broader pattern 
within the community or if it is linked with other anti-democratic initiatives or coordinated efforts that are being put in motion from outside of our communities. We've seen a lot of that happening lately. It was encouraging to learn that many communities are finding even more individuals willing to become active in this work. And they're also finding creative ways to partner with other organizations within their community. So think about how you can partner and enlist others to this work. In our show notes, I'll be sure to include the link to the guide that we discussed, and you'll find some good advice there, especially in the very practical section on scenarios. Another point is to be sure to take care of yourself and others who are involved in community advocacy for equity and inclusion. Think about how to protect yourself and your team physically, online, and emotionally. The bottom line, don't let anti-democratic actions blindside you. Be safe, anticipate, and have a plan. This has been the State of Inclusion podcast. Join us again next time. And if you enjoyed this episode, the best compliment for our work is your willingness to share these ideas with others. So leave us a review. We'd love your comments. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.